Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Dr. William Courtney, one of the world's foremost pioneers in cannabis research. Welcome, William. Thanks for having me. William, before we launch into the latest and greatest news in cannabis research, let's back up a bit and tell us how you originally got into the field of doing cannabis research. Um, fellow that I went to medical school with, uh, probably my closest friend there, asked if I would approve of his use of cannabis. And at that point, I was really into national board chemistry and was biochemistry was a kind of minor major in college. And so I didn't quite understand why he wanted me to approve of cannabis when we had all of the 3,000 pharmaceutical medicines that were incredibly powerful. But because he asked, um, you know, I, I started to do research and within four or five months of looking at cannabis, um, I became quite interested in it. And within a year, started attending conferences all over Europe, and Africa and Middle East and North America. And then pretty soon started developing my own research based on um, a lot of cannabis docs will have you know a very small number of patients, but having you know my practice in Northern California, I had eight thousand people who were um, living on cannabis for their mortgage and food, but also uh, kind of leading the charge in terms of using cannabis for the various traumatic injuries you get if you're going to be a farmer in the, in the wilds of Humboldt and Mendocino. And so I was, my education, but the strongest education came from my patients. I did um, along the way decide I should look into the uh, American Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine and became a diplomat as well as a present presenter and speaker for them at various conferences. And, um, you know, it's, it's nice that they're trying to move the American Academy towards a full American board. Um, you need so many years and experience, and um, but it's it's moving in the right direction to uh, bring more acceptance and validity to uh, the endogenous cannabinoid system and its support by the exogenous cannabinoids. Well, given that, as you say, there were three thousand medicines in the pharmacopoeia, what was there initially in that five month research that you did? That, that attracted you to doing uh, cannabis research? Because um, I, was, I was doing a, cannabis approvals. It was, you know, so that people could grow cannabis, raise cannabis. And at that point, most, a very large number of people in that area kind of were paying for their mortgage and raising their family um, on growing medicinal cannabis. And you know, so... I became involved in approving of their use um, and through that became exposed to how they were personally using it. And I, I ran into, uh, you know, there, most people start out with the inhaled, um, but then some point along the way, they switch over and begin to look at uh, consumption first, you know, first edibles, then moving towards tinctures and then gravitating towards dietary with dietary being generally you know, 
the, the least amount of changes to the plant, you'll blend it or dice it or whatever, but you try to avoid the use of any heat in the process and therefore preserve those uh, very, very important and delicate medicinal acidic cannabinoids, which uh, we're continuing to find out their utility and it's quite Now, broad. when you first started doing uh, cannabis research then, you were primary in, primarily interested in tetrahydrocannabinol. Uh, Correct. But you also then became one of, if not the first scientist, to become interested in cannabidiol. And you told me about that on an interview we did together maybe as long as 15 years ago. Correct. Yes, that was, and this was uh, related to my patients who were using cannabis in a non-psychoactive format. Like while they were, you know, you know, like I said, raising cannabis to support their families, um, their own aches and pains uh, were managed in a in a different way. And I was introduced to you know other ways of of using cannabis other than the traditional uh, decarboxylation through heat psychoactive use. Um, and, you know, I've, I found people that were eating uh, raw leaf for migraines. And it was like, what's up with that? You know, and they, were, they were bringing along a lot of their personal experience and research and educating me. And then I would turn around and provide that information to the next patient. And so I was kind of fortunately at the center of, uh, uh, you know, of thousands of people and able to Take uh, this person uses a salve, and this one, you know, um, uses an edible, and this one uses a topical, and this one juices it, and this one, you know, and to take these different methodologies and, ex and allow other people to try them out and then get feedback from them as to whether or not it was uh, increased the benefit to them. Well, for people who are new to this discussion, please. Give us some details about the difference between tetrahydrocannabinol and cabotenol, and also give us some details about the various ways of administration and the efficacy of those different ways of administration. Yeah, so you know, classically for 10,000 years, humans became interested in cannabis that was heated, which um, breaks down the cannabinoid acids like THC acid, which is non-psychoactive. The use of heat turns it into THC, which is. So for you know, that 10,000 years, you would smoke it, you would steep it into tea, saute it, bake it, um, any, any way to improve the concentration and therefore potency uh, of the psychoactive element, but along the way, there it, that THC psychoactivity actually limits the amount that you can comfortably use, because at a certain level, then you're not able to function. You know, you kind of have to sit back and kind of be passive until some of it wears off. But the, the same group had access to vast quantities of cannabis, and they were indulging. You know, making their own tinctures, making their own oils. Um, able to kind of, uh, like I said, this one woman was drying leaf and eating the dried leaf uh, to control her migraines. And so I just was honored to be able to uh, sit with these thousands and thousands of 
field researchers and gather their experiences and um, educate both myself and then uh, the next patient that I saw. Is eating the dry leaf the preferred way of administration for headaches and migraines? Um, that was one of my early introductions to non-smoked, you know, non-inhaled forms. Um, to me, I am a very, very firm believer in um, the raw plant, and it can be, it can be diced, it can be blended, it can be juiced, um, because when you use the raw plant, you're going to bring in a much more robust uh, profile and content of the aromatic terpenes. You know, so there's many classes of molecules in cannabis, but it, it's pretty easy or common to break them down into the um, 10 to 15 carbon terpenes, the aromatic molecules, but not only the aromatic, aromatic because they're small, but they're anti-neoplastic, anti antiviral, anti-inflammatory, antibacterial. I mean, the terpenes are very potent independently. And then you got the 2021 carbon phytocannabinoids, which have all those elements. And then most interesting, when you're willing to use the raw plant, um, you have a definite synergy between those two classes of molecules where um, if you get so much benefit from the terpene and additional benefit from the cannabinoid, you'd think, well, if I add those two benefits together, that would tell me what I'd get with raw cannabis. But in fact, there's a synergy which is greater than the sum of the parts. And so when you combine those two independent elements, you not only have their individual contribution, but you have a very definite synergy which um, enhances further the, the total benefit of consuming raw cannabis. So the dried leaf, there, there was a significant loss of the terpenes. And while there, there was still some terpenes left and uh, it was a complex plant, um, it, it was, I think it was 2007 at an international cannabinoid research uh, meeting. I believe it was in Canada, St. Savoie. No, I guess that was, uh, that was Iron, uh, Upper Scotland. Uh, but the one in Canada was where we, I first uh, was exposed to um, the value of these very lightweight aromatic, meaning they would volatilize, you know, and uh, I knew that, you know, if they were able to float away, they, they provide the aroma that you smell when you're walking up to the plant. Those are, those are the terpenes drifting in the air. And so, you know, they're obviously very easy to um, lose control of them. And particularly the more you process the plant, the more of them just leave the plant. And so when you move to the living, living plant, you, you get your optimal uh, you know, amounts of both of those classes of compounds. So, so we, I moved. I moved into the raw green plant. So, give us some detail about using marijuana uh, in a blender and making a drink out of it. How do you literally do that, William? Um, what the biggest use uh, when you're trying to put cannabis into the diet to integrate cannabis, you know, rather than just uh, manage an instantaneous symptom with the inhaled or the possibly intermediate control with an edible because of the slower absorption. When you move to dietary, you're actually going to integrate the contents of this plant into the endogenous cannabinoid system. And so everyone's familiarity and study and comfort and interest really begins with an in-depth research on the endogenous cannabinoid system. And Wikipedia has an excellent introduction, you know, a, a very extensive article with a lot of links. The more you know about the endogenous cannabinoid system, the more you begin to understand uh, 
how cannabis is a benefit, where it's effective, and you know, you, you begin you you build your use of cannabis based on the science of the ECS and um, it, the endogenous cannabinoid system is stunning. It's it's involved in the intracellular regulation. So we've all heard of the endocrine system, which regulates the whole body with with the various gonadal and thyroid and adrenal tissue. Um, paracrine is a cluster of cells working together to perform a function. Autocrine is a function across the plasma membrane. Intracrine is the regulation that occurs inside of the cell. And that really is the domain of the endogenous cannabinoid system and therefore also the site of activity for the exogenous terpenocannabinoids that come in and support that ECS system. And so the ECS system really is the key to understanding physiology, cell function, how the cell functions in an organism, and where this plant comes in, and through its support of intracellular function. Um, prevention is the benefit of using cannabis as food early on, um, and the blending is just a way to kind of break the break the cells open, reduce, open up the, the tissue so that the uh, compounds are more easily absorbed. Um, and so a blender is is one way to um, improve your recovery of the chemistry of this plant. You have to be careful. Um, a lot of the very powerful blenders can actually cook um, the plant. And so if you if you take cannabis and because you just don't the fiber is the least pleasant aspect of cannabis, so I'm just going to blend the fiber out of existence. Oftentimes, when you do that, you um, heat heat the plant up, and when you do that, you release the THC, and you take a non psychoactive drink and can make it quite intoxicating. Um, and so you have to be careful with the blender that you don't. Uh, that you don't actually cook the plant because when you do that, then all of a sudden your dose drops back down to that 10,000 microgram dose limit of THC. Um, and you may have been using much higher concentrations uh, when you were not trying to skirt around uh, you know, so much psychoactivity that it was unpleasant. So what amount in ounces would you recommend to someone who wants to uh, eat the plants, perhaps in a blender, making a juice um, on a daily basis? Well, I, I generally kind of take it back to the leafy material. Um, and so I would say roughly a cup of leaf is a very, is a very strong dose. Um, if you are in excellent health and you want to support that health, um, you may be able to get by with a little bit less if you have really acute uh, condition where you're having disseminated cancer or you're dealing with uh, with a very in, uh, serious short-term kind of prognosis, uh, then you may want to move it up to more like um, eight ounces like or, or two cups of, of raw leafy material. And then when you take that and blend it, I mean, or, or juice it, like run through a very slow-turning auger-type juicer, um, you'll be getting out um, an ounce or two of very concentrated juice. That juice is very potent, meaning it's very difficult. I've seen people do shots of that where they just throw it back, but it's, it has a lot of cannabinoid acids. It's quite uh, pungent. Um, most people take that juice and then blend it into vegetable or fruit, primarily to improve its palatability 
Um, because if, if it's unpleasant, then compliance falls off pretty quickly for one reason or another. So you want to you want to make sure it's uh, palatable enough that you continue integrating this this product into your leafy green vegetable uh, consumption. So we're talking here about uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, which uh, and blending it up, which is going to uh, result in a psychoactive. Uh, condition, as well as a health uh, benefit, correct? Well, not in the raw cannabis. Um, as you move to dry, you will increase the concentration of THC because the THC acid will break down as you store and dry the plant. But in the living plant, the ratio of THC acid to THC can run well over 100 to 1. So the, the predominant form in the green living plant is THC acid. And so it's non-psychoactive because um, the amount of THC falls below that you know, 10,000 microgram psychoactive dose. Um, if you take the green leaf and blend it and then cook it inadvertently, um, you can decarboxylate that huge amount of THC acid and, and raise the level of THC to comfortable psychoactivity to uncomfortable psychoactivity. Now, talk to us about the benefits, or, or if you recommend the benefits, of cannabidiol uh, as a, a, a juicing material. So yeah, I, I became quite excited about CBD early, like 2004 or five, and my first business card had a, um, had a molecule of CBD on it. And then three or four years later, I became quite interested in CBD acid, and I re remade my uh, business card and had CBD acid on it. And then three or four years later, I go, it's not, it's not one or the other, and I, my last business card included both CBD acid and CBD. It was like, they both have, you know, when you put that uh, carboxyl acid moiety on that molecule, you create a different molecule. A lot of people think CBDA, CBD, you know, they're probably pretty similar. They're radically different because that carboxyl acid is such a polar group that it's going to attach in different ways and be more acceptable in different um, environments. And so even though their names are similar, um, their, their actions are quite diverse. And also in, in the living plant, um, you're going to have a you know maybe a 50 to one predominance of CBDA over CBD, and so what's interesting is there there it's a very complex mixture in the living plant, um, and they you know all 150 phytocannabinoids, 200 cannaflavins, they're all there, and they're and because we rank the material by does it get me high, that we're the only organism to ever um, feel that that was the uh, kind of benchmark. Uh, that against which you measured the utility of cannabis, when in fact the real benchmark is the diversity of the molecules and their synergies in supporting cell function, prevention of disease, or restoration of health. If you got behind the eight ball and were deficient in your cannabinoid consumption, um, and then all of a sudden you go, you know, someone recommended you try something, you try it, and you, know, you, you restore your health. Um, generally, at that point, you recognize that it. You know, it's as important as other leafy green vegetables, and you, you want it to be there in a, in a dietary kind of uh, presence, meaning regular functional. And tell us now some stories of healing 
of actual illnesses and disease that you're aware of, healing from the use of either THC or CBD. And 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 it's important um, that we include CBDA and THCA because I mean there's like a, oh I think it was uh, let, me, let me see if I can find this article um, there was a uh, Oregon State University paper that just came out January thirteenth uh, compounds in cannabis sativa that are shown to prevent coronavirus infection and you know the CB, CBD acid CBG acid um, the, those are found in the raw plant and are easy. They're very delicate. They easily decarboxylate to produce the CBD or the THC. But in fact, when you include them, um, you either, you don't want to throw the acids under the bus because you know for ten thousand years humans were taught that you know you got to smoke it, you got to steep it, you got to bake it, you got to do something, and you're not going to get the benefit of it. That's quite contrary. When you do heat it. Uh, the only benefit you get is a shot at that psychoactivity, but you you give up um, so much of its medicinal and preventative properties when you um, trade off uh, the acids for just the neutrals. So coming back, let's hear some stories of, of cases of people that have yes. actually benefited. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think... I have about eight, when I was in Northern California, I had up to about 8,000 patients. Uh, I, had, I had been in interviews with them. I think there were over 18,000 interviews. And generally, when I sit down and talk with someone, I tend to ramble on. I mean, I, you know, get me started. And it's pretty hard to stop me until <laughs> Kristen Alton says, you got 10 people sitting out here waiting to see you. You're shut up and you know, see another one. So they're essentially... You tell me what cells do. Cells do everything. And disease is a dysfunction of cellular. So whether you're, you're talking uh, autoimmune disorders from juvenile rheumatoid, fibromyalgia. You know, Kristen was the kind of storybook case. Um, she had been to the Mayo Clinic. She had been on methotrexate and Plaquenil and massive doses of steroids. You know, and, and Mayo Clinic finally threw their hands up. They said, we don't know what's wrong with you or how to treat you. And we're giving you a bunch of drugs that have a lot of side effects, but that's not really working. And as soon as she, uh, as soon as we got together and she moved over to raw cannabis, she essentially was able to stop all of her prior, you know, steroids and Plaquenil and all those. Other, I mean, she had developed an allergy to methotrexate. She had tried it so long as a, uh, you know, as an older child and young adult, um, you know, so she, she's her fibromyalgia, her interstitial cystitis. I mean, she's the 18 year old girl sitting in a urologist's office office with 10 80 year old men, and she recalls her childhood. You know, I'm the I'm the only child sitting at the uh, you know at the urologist's office, um, but you know they would stick various things up her urethra and install chemicals and chemistry and, and, you know, all kinds of stuff into her bladder, trying to control the um, interstitial cystitis. And, you know, that just came under um, quick and complete control. I've had, as I've had a lot of patients with interstitial cystitis, had a lot of patients with autoimmune disorders, fibromyalgia, um, juvenile rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis, um, you know, temporal arteritis, you know, essentially if there's inflammation, 
you're, you've got a really good shot at being qu quite beneficial to symptoms at the very least, and oftentimes uh, pathology. You know, if it's a condition they've had for a long, very long time, there's been a lot of cellular damage, you know, it's going to take a while to rebuild that tissue. Some of it probably may not even be able to be rebuilt. You move into cardiac um, issues in terms of um, circulation, inflammation, acute MI resolution, um, people with strong history of myocardial disease um, who have kind of been able to kind of use an anti-inflammatory and kind of block a lot of that progression. A lot of cancers, cancers of just about every cell that you can imagine, you know, that um, and I, I'm generally the uh, doc of last resorts. You know, when your Western medical oncologist says, we've tried chemo, we've tried radiation, surgery, we, it's just too disseminated. When, when they're told, you know, get your affairs in order, that's when they get their internet search hat on and <laughs> they go digging for an alternative to, uh, you know, filling out their will and giving it to someone that they would hope would uh, distribute their life assets. And so I often get called in when they're at their wits end. And I there's not a condition that there was not benefit from. Um, maybe there's some acute, you know, uh, you know, acute traumatic type issues, but even with acute traumatic stuff, um, if you could control the inflammation, if you can facilitate the healing of the tissues, all those things um, really can be useful to, uh, you know, even an external um, uh, cause of uh, severe disease. So, um, you know, I've got hundreds of, I mean, I've got a, a list of 10 or 15 pages of conditions, uh, DSM 3, 4, 5, and, and, and as well as just general medical conditions. And, and it, it lists those by the number of patients seen for for those conditions. Now, cannabidiol has gotten a lot of publicity for being effective with convulsions. I'm sure you're aware of that. Um, are there other uh, diseases and illnesses where you would specifically recommend cannabidiol instead of tetrahydrocannabinol, either A or uh, either way, CBDA or THCA? Yeah, I, I would. Uh, um, if you go to if you go to the whole plant, then you're going to have all of them. And um, CBD acid and CBG acid, like I mentioned. Um, it's, it's really interesting that those two interface at the ACE2 receptor, which is the site of attachment. Um, so a virus attach and it essentially uh, are allowed to enter through their attachment at the uh, ACE2 receptor. And these cannabinoids interfere in their ability to make that attachment. And therefore, kind of, if you can block viral attachment, then you're obviously going to also block viral entry. And so their preventative abilities are are quite stunning. And as we, you know, I don't know if you've been kind of keeping your finger on the pulse of NeoCove. You know, I, I if, as a religious person, I'm pray that uh, NeoCove doesn't. Uh, right now, I think they're one gene mutation away from NeoCove switching from uh, animals to humans. And NeoCove brings the lethality of MERS and the transmissibility of COVID into a package 
with uh, you're looking at um, if if humans if it once it gets a foothold in human, uh, we're looking at thirty to thirty five percent mortality with uh, the neocov uh, coronavirus, um, and so that obviously um, at that point you know you want to be eating a lot of raw cannabis because you really want to prevent that coronavirus from um, attaching and entering. Uh, and that's where the daily chew, I mean, I, I'll, I take a, a, just a little plug of raw cannabis and, um, and that bathes the entire oral pharyngeal cavity with these terpenes and cannabinoids. And so they're right there on that mucosa where they're going to uh, assist in blocking viral attachment and viral entry. And, you know, some viruses, you know, are, are maybe not quite so significant, but as you move up the hierarchy of the coronas, um, if Neocove busts out of the research, because I know that they've mutated uh, the coronavirus to produce Neocove and trying to develop a response, you know, some kind of vaccine to the Neocove. Right now, it appears to be um, resistant to all prior vaccinations. And so it's, um, it really, is a horrific uh, potential um, that uh, prey doesn't get out of the lab. Uh, do we have some actual studies on uh, the use of uh, cannabis in preventing the attachment of the uh, COVID virus? Uh, yes, there's um, there's one Oregon State University uh, has done some research. Uh, compounds in cannabis shown to prevent coronavirus infection. Um, there, there's a lot of articles like that, and there's varying degrees. And this is the one that uh, actually calls out cannabidiolic acid and cannabigerolic acid. So um, this is the first time I've seen uh, an org, uh, a, a paper or a research you know, promote that. I mean, like for years, there's 10,000 articles on CBD, so that's uh, pretty well documented. Um, but CBD acid, you can kind of, you know, there's a few of them on involvement in cancer and this one on, uh, you know, to prevent coronavirus infection. Um, and then there's another one in aging-us.com, search for preventative strategies, novel high CBD cannabis sativa extracts modulate ACE2 expression and COVID-19 gateway tissue. So, you know, the once again, the... the um, the COVID-19 comes in. And if you can uh, modulate that ACE2 receptor, then you can actually block the attachment. If you block the attachment, you can block the preventory, the, the entry. There's another one. Uh, coronavirus is the newly found, okay, is the newly found neocove COVID variant by Wuhan scientists, the deadliest of all COVID strains. I mean, it's it's very disturbing when you move into that neocove. And... Um, you know, like I said, it, it's, it has the worst of MERS and, and the worst of COVID combined. And if, it, uh, if, if they can't develop a, a response to that, um, it's going to be, uh, you know, and it can't quite imagine what would happen to society and culture if we lost 30% of people. William, is anybody working on creating some kind of a handy method of administration other than taking the leaf and, and juicing it and going through that process? Uh, are we going to be seeing oh, yeah, something that's... Yeah, a, a lot of people... 
Yeah, there's, I mean, essentially, there's no, if there's no money in salads. I mean, so if, if people are growing their own cannabis and eating it, there's no way to kind of step in between them and, and get a surcharge going there. So when you, as soon as you take the plant and reduce it to an extract, you create a product and the product is a market. And then you, then you get the marketing and the, the education. And, and there's a lot of people out there producing, um, you know, dried product and tinctures and, and salves and, um, uh, Nutraceutical, nutraceutical potential of hemp cannabis CTV, sativa seeds and sprouts. I mean, I was very excited that they're beginning to include uh, research into the microgreens and sprouts because that's been a very big interest of mine in the last four or five years, given you know, the fact that you're not going to get a lot of people that are going to be able to have the lights and the energy and the space to be growing cannabis plant to be using the leaf. But when you move into cannabis sprouts, um, if you've got you know half a dozen uh, quart jars and uh, some screen covers, you can sprout cannabis. And there was a, a study um, done in the, um, I believe it was Czechoslovakia, um, looking at the the role of the cannabinoid spike that occurs between day ten and fourteen. The study uh, was actually referred in a small text marijuana chemistry. And so I didn't see the full original article, and thus I didn't know exactly when they began day one. It was day one when they, and you, the presumption being that it was they were planting seeds in the ground. So when the dicotyledons burst the surface, my assumption is, is that is day one. And then if you wait um, 10 days after that, um, they, they, this study had done 5,000 gas chromatograph coupled mass spectrometer studies. So the, they had, you know, they weren't HPLC uh, capable back at that time, but the, the uh, GCMS stuff was good enough. And they, they were the ones that had did the analysis and said that you got this four day window um, where there's a significant cannabinoid spike. Um, it actually then almost falls off to zero for the last two weeks of the first month. And then the cannabinoids begin to build during the second month of the plant's life, peaking at the end of the third before the plant goes into flower. But in terms of the sprout, you suddenly have a way for every person to be having food grade, no avectin, you know, no pesticides, herbicides, miticides, fungicides. You have food grade cannabis growing on your kitchen counter. And um, I'm actually involved in doing some research currently with an analytic lab in California to reproduce that study because um, it's just so critical in my perspective that if, if in fact this cannabinoid spike is present, that just lets us know, okay, that's where you're going to time your um, consumption. And uh, while there's a little bit of flavor with the cannabis sprout, um, you can take them, there's much less fiber, they'll blend into uh, a juice, juice smoothie, a vegetable juice, uh, you know, there's uh, a, a way to get those into the diet uh, and, and palatably or enjoyably so that you don't have compliance issues rising up on top of critical dietary essential nutrients. Do you anticipate that we're going to be seeing more use of cannabis as a preventive for uh, various viruses? There's an awful lot of research in that area. And like I said, they're looking and I'm glad to see that they're now looking at CBD acid and CBG acid, because in the past, those medicinal acidics, they're delicate. You can't buy a whole vial or bottle. You know, they're harder to get a hold of, so it's harder to do research. Um, but they're they're pushing out there. 
And uh, the nice thing what that does is it it brings the whole plant back into focus. That you know, if you want those medicinal acidics, you're not going to get a better shot at them than in the in the living plant. I mean, you can you can try to make a CBD acid product or a CBG acid product, but it's going to be difficult, and they're likely to break down, you know, on the shelf in a year anyways because they're um, that they're just delicate molecules that are you know that come from a living organism. And they don't they don't bear up well um, in an external environment. So, but there's a lot of people that are dehydrating, and you know, uh, 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 what's the other technique where they pull the moisture out? Uh, right aid where they are harvest right where they uh, pull the moisture out and make a very dry powder. Those are going to have a fair representation. Um, but I'm I'm looking for the day when you go to Safeway and you can buy a four by four. Of cannabis sprouts that are six, seven days into sprouting, and you take them home and you, you cut the tops off and toss them in your salad or sandwich or blend them up. Um, if you can, if you can buy wheatgrass that way, there's absolutely no reason you can't buy cannabis that way. And it's pretty stunningly conclusive that you know that uh, that that young plant really will go a long ways uh, in the preservation of health and restoration of health. What are you looking for going forward? What do you what do you foresee as the future for cannabis as a medicinal? Um, I, I've you know you only need cannabis as a medicine when you forgot it as a food. Um, I'm you know will always be out there strongly advocating that if we turn to cannabis as a dietary essential. We will not need it uh, for as a therapeutic agent. Agent, um, so prevention. You know, I, I think I did a course, uh, did some studies in nutrition before I went to medical school. So I've always been kind of, you know, inclined. I got pretty pretty much ridiculed uh, talking about it in medical school. They said, you know, if you want to be a nutritionist, you know, go to a nutritional school. Then we study medicine. We don't really have a lot of time for diet and you know the stuff that you seem to be obsessed about, but. I, I, re, I remain obsessed, firmly obsessed, and uh, have been delighted by the research efforts that have uh, provided legs to what I've seen in my 8,000 patients who uh, had access to cannabis, unlimited access, and so they could dabble in eating it raw and, you know, and trying different ways of uh, moving it forward and um, how we what it's going to take to get um, a four by four of raw cannabis in the grocery store is that moves into somebody else's expertise. I mean, I, um, it, it certainly belongs there, and there's certainly nothing that you could eat that would come anywhere near it in terms of its uh, uh, support of cell function, cell health, and the prevention of disease. Um, many years ago, when I interviewed you, you talked about instances where your uh, movement from country to country was uh, was blocked or at least slowed down at various times uh, by agents of the government. Uh, what about in recent years? Are you able to move about, or do you move about from your island? And no, we we have got we are snuggled in a rainforest, and um, you know we, we we traveled so intensely, but it was always you know. Uh, dicey, you know, going through customs and all these types of things. 
Um, but we, we live uh, in this uh, eternal spring. We're a thousand feet up in the mountains on a tropical island. So it's like spring up here in terms of, of the temperature. And we got this huge pond and uh, the fish and the kids and we all swim in it. And you've got, you know, there were a thousand banana plants on the place. And I didn't realize there were so many different, there are seven different varieties. There's finger bananas, Cuban bananas, fig, cocoives. You know, a lot of that, the guy had 400 uh, chocolate plants. He made, he was making 200 candy bars a week uh, in the backyard. And I uh, had like a thousand pineapple plants. And what Remind uh, us was, of the name of the- you know, I had to cut down the coconuts. Excuse me, remind us of the name of the island you're on. It is the Commonwealth of Dominica. And it's uh, down the Caribbean chain and below Guadeloupe, you know, it's, a, a small little mountainous island, unlike most Caribbean islands that are very flat and they have to desalinate the ocean for drinking water, uh, Dominica has 365 year-round freshwater rivers, and we happen to have several of them flowing through our place. And um, just the purest, most delicious water, uh, we essentially, we just pull it right out of the river and run it into the kitchen. It's just uh, so sweet. Uh, and so how many pretty, people live? Very, very gracious resource. How many people live on the island, William? What's the population? It, they, you know, depends on whether they're trying to raise funds or support from America. Sometimes they pump up to 70,000, but I think 30 to 40 is probably a little more realistic. Um, and uh, where's the nearest city to where you uh, are and your family are living? Well, we're living kind of dead center in the island. Bells is a little local community, but that's, it's a, you know, two or three houses on the road. You know, there's really maybe one, one small store, but if Rousseau is the capital, I generally go there, you know, once a week, just where the uh, grocery stores and hardware and electronic stores and computer people. So um, that's, that's, that's a pretty much a full day project. I will get up at four thirty and, hike out of here and uh, take the bus down and you know, do my shopping and then make my way back and try to be in before it gets too dark. How long a bus ride is it to the city for you? It's, you know, getting to the, it takes you almost longer to get to the bus. Um, the bus rides, you know, 35, 40 minutes, 45 minutes kind of depends a bit on traffic. We've gotten a little more Los Angeles with our early morning uh, backups trying to get into the into the capital city, you know, and so it's like I lived in Los Angeles for a period of time when we were going to Children's Hospital, and you know, I used to live on you know some of those California L.A. highways, and you'd just be bumper to bumper for hours, and all of a sudden I'm driving that same way in Dominica, and it's like holy you know, flashback. It so it, how long does it before. take you to walk to the bus? <laughs> I gather you walk to the bus. Yeah, it's um, you know half an hour. Uh, it's 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 a hike down the hill. It's uh, and then particularly if you're uh, carrying groceries back up, you know you carry them fifty feet and stop, carry them another fifty feet. You know, frequent stops if you're carrying you know a, a lot of food as much as you can possibly lug. Try to coordinate it. We, uh, you know, communications are a bit rough, but if I can get a hold of the horde of children, then. Three girls will run down, and you know, then I have a backup, and that makes the trip up the hill 
a little more easy. Sounds like you could use a little ATV. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a pickup, but it kind of blew up and we're working, you know, at some point I'll get a vehicle and that, you know, obviously we had a vehicle when we found this place because if we didn't have a vehicle, we would not have, you know, you wouldn't, yes. uh, you wouldn't walk uh, half a mile up a mountainside. I remember. But I... we easily drove up and then built a huge road and uh, that all worked well for a couple of years. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. I want to thank you for bringing us up to date on your, on your research yeah. and we'll stay in touch and uh, mm -hmm. continue to uh, get updated by you from time to time. And I didn't uh, get into all the different strains. I mean, there's so much, you know, uh, uh, I was going to try to go through a lot of the different varieties of cannabis, but we can do that before. Um, but I um, also, I make most of my living uh, doing consults. And if anyone is looking for um, either strain advice or use advice, um, they can reach me in my Fort Bragg, Northern California phone number, which is 707-961-1420. Say it again, William. Say the number um, again, please. 707-961-1420. Okay. And my email is askdrbill, A-S-K-D-R. B-I-L-L -L at Gmail. That's probably the very best way because that gives me a hard copy. Put your phone number in there, a good time to reach, and I can call back. Um, and uh, we're going to be opening up a, a YouTube channel probably next week. It'll be Dr. William Courtney. And I, I'm looking for, I mean, I've, like, I have a lot of patients running around who may be hearing this. If um, people want to be involved, I, I'm looking at doing various individual medical conditions and then if people are willing for that to be posted on the internet you know I've, I've got arthritis i've got rheumatoid i've got you know uterine problems i've got cancer i've got migraines and so looking looking to do interviews record those and, and post up a series of um you know the use of cannabis for medical conditions um and you know on the on the channel that we're opening i'll be doing uh, review of other cannabis products besides the, the medical conditions um, and new research. Obviously, the interest the COVID. I mean, before NeoCove is leaked from the lab or just converts from its current animal reservoir, you want to have raw cannabis in your diet. You really you want to be able to support that um, ACE2 receptor blocking that receptor from viral attachment and viral entry. So. You know, if you if the if I was not clear enough, um, and just look up just look up NeoCove and and imagine if if that uh, coronavirus gets out of the lab or gets out of the animal, other other zoonotic conditions. Um, spell NeoCove. And also, spell, spell NeoCove. Spell NeoCove for us, William. Yeah, N E O C O V. Yes. And you can just put NeoCove. Uh, coronavirus pull it up and make sure you're sitting down and you know and you know <laughs> and then make sure that your uh second home is extremely well isolated uh, uh speaking of which there's a chance we may be selling a one acre uh it's uh it, it will supply with one inch of water so you can have all the water that's coming right off the mountain and there's a uh, a pipe that you can put electricity, bring it up, or you can have to make. Right now, there's a fiber optic in it, 
So we're looking for someone who, you know, wants uh, extreme isolation where, you know, we are, um, uh, there's no structure there, but people around here can put a concrete block, you know, simple house on it. Everything's pretty simple there. I mean, you can go complex if you want, but uh, you, you can, and you know, the houses we live in are, the hardwoods around here are crazy hard. You have to drill a hole before you put a nail in it. You cannot pound into this wood. So, our, so you can make houses out of wood that are like, you know, they're just crazy. It's hard as friggin' concrete. So there's there's lumber there. You can build your own hardwood house or, um, but we can, uh, it's it's an interesting place in the wilderness. And we're also going to be doing a, a home, we do, we do a homeschool, we have three kids. So we're going to be doing a homesteading channel. So if you stay, I guess Dr. William Courtney will, is going to be the name of our channel next week. It's Kristen is putting it all together, but we'll be doing, like I said, you know, medical conditions, research, COVID stuff, as well as homesteading. Uh, uh, trying to survive in, uh, in a rainforest. Exciting stuff. Thank you, William. 